0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books in Military History podcast on the New Books Network. This is your host, Bob Wintermute. Having the opportunity to chat with historians and authors about their work is a real privilege for us here at New Books in Military History. And this episode is certainly no exception to that. We're very fortunate to be able to talk with Daniel Toppin about his recent book, Britain's War, A New World, 1942 to 1947, published by Oxford University Press earlier this year. Together with the preceding volume, Britain's War, Into Battle, 1937 to 1941, the two books offer a complete and all encompassing history of the Second World War and the events immediately preceding and following it, and how they affected Great Britain's place in the world. Dan Todman is professor of modern history at Queen Mary University of London. The aforementioned first volume of Britain's War was shortlisted in 2016 for the Longman History Today Prize. He is also the editor of Lord Alan Brooke's War Diaries, 1939 to 1945, and received the Times Young Academic Author of the Year Award in 2005. For his book the great war myth and memory dan and welcome to new books of military history thanks bob okay well it may seem trivial in the face of such an accomplishment but i do like to open our interviews with authors by asking how they came to their projects what in particular prompted you to consider taking on this type of undertaking and more specific to this series how do you even begin to conceptualize undertaking the task of researching and organizing this project
1: ah oh, that's a, that's a great question bob not a trivial one um so i mean i think that uh in lots of ways i'd grown up with the second world war both my family so both my my mum's family and my dad's family were affected By it. My father's parents met when they were uh, both in the British Army. My granddad taught my grandmother to drive uh, in an army truck. And on the other side, my my mum's dad uh, was a territorial army soldier. He joined up just before uh, Kristallnacht in 1938 uh, was called up, mobilized on the outbreak of war, and was then uh, away mostly in Egypt for the whole war. And it was the most most interesting thing, I think, that had ever happened to him. So an awful lot of the times that I met him over my childhood, he had stories to tell about his war. He was uh, a mechanic, um, someone who'd worked for London Transport repairing buses. So he had, in lots of ways, a good war. He didn't see combat. I think he was only felt really in physical danger uh, once throughout his whole war experience. But it had obviously been something that shaped him profoundly. The only chance, really, that someone from his background, you know, a working class lad from East London, uh, would have got to travel outside the UK to see all these, what were to him, incredibly exotic places. And so I grew up with those stories and it was things something that I was interested in. Then I guess when I became a, a historian and I knew as an undergraduate that I wanted to be a professional historian, I became very interested in war memory. That's really the root of the first book um, about how the First World War was remembered in British history. And understanding how wars were remembered meant understanding something that had happened, uh, what happened in the first place. So I became a historian of war, not just of memory. And then it was a sort of natural progression on from the First to the Second World War. And then your question about um, how do you even go about conceptualizing and beginning this project? Well, that was a major challenge. And I think there are two parts to it. Actually, one is trying to get your head around the secondary literature that's already there. This is obviously uh, a topic where a huge amount has been written. Much of it uh, shaped by the the views of the authors and what a live event the Second World War remained in British culture for decades afterwards. But the other part is identifying those those places where there's a gap, an absence in the historiography. And uh, so I think these books are a mixture of trying to synthesize and knit together different bits of things that had already been written and trying to identify and try and um, address some of those gaps. And then the, I think the final point of that is, is sort of putting the jigsaw together. So one of the things I'm proudest of with both books is that they they knit together the, the military, the social, the economic, and the political history of the war. And I knew from a very early point that that was the approach that I had to take if I was to try and make things make sense, that this this is a total war and it needs a sort of total history. And that meant that an awful lot of work in both books was about trying to fit that into a way of telling the history that would be compelling to readers that would keep them going, that would allow us to move back and forth across those different themes that this wasn't something that would work if you divided up the book in wholly by on a thematic basis. So if you had a, a first volume that was a bit of military history, a bit of social history, and then a second volume that was maybe economic and political history, and in each time you told the whole story of the war through, that actually that wouldn't get across the complexity, you wouldn't get the interconnections.
0: Why do you think it's taken so long for such an all-encompassing social, political, economic and military treatment of Great Britain's Second World War experience to appear?
1: Oh, again, that's a great question. I think there's uh, two aspects. One is, um, you know, the way that all Second World War historiography has developed, and that's an, a natural consequence, I think, of passage over time. So we're at the beginning now, I think, of a real boom in writing of the histories of the Second World War. And that's partly just because we've, we're sufficiently far away from it, that actually there's been time for historians to reflect, time for archival material to become available, time for different interpretations um, to be put together. But then I think the other part of that is sort of how historical fashion has changed. That actually, I mean, I remember when I started this project, and it was one that took a long time, that people said to me, well, hasn't surely that's been done already. And actually, it was hard to get across that the history of the war was still a live thing, that there was still an incredible amount that we didn't know about it, and that really we'd uh, we'd got as far, I think, as maybe the second draft of history, but not much further beyond that. So, I, I mean, I think it's a very exciting time, actually, to be writing and reading histories of the Second World War, because I think the momentum that we're now developing is going to carry the field forward in a way that's much more sophisticated, that allows us to put together different perspectives. And in a sense, again, sort of linking back to my past as a First World War historian, that's where the history of the First World War was maybe a couple of decades ago.
0: What was the general perception in Great Britain and the empire at large of their prospects for victory? against the Axis powers in January 1942.
1: Well, one of the things that fascinates me is uh, how confident Britain's remained about victory, even when things looked at their darkest. And they looked pretty bad in January 42. I mean, simultaneously bad and absolutely certain of victory. So um, Britain's just experienced a really shocking reverse in the Far East with the sinking of the the naval force sent out um, to protect Singapore. The onrushing uh, advance of the Japanese, advancing much quicker and with more success than anybody had expected, really takes Britain's and their strategic leaders aback during January 1942. Singapore, the great uh, fortress, uh, the linchpin. Um, of the British Empire in the Far East is going to surrender that February. At the same time, German forces have uh, turned eastwards and have been halted in front of Moscow. And for an awful lot of British people, the Soviet Union doesn't look like an ideological enemy. It looks like a great beacon of hope uh, in early 1942, not least because the Red Army has managed to win a victory against the German army, which nobody else has managed in that same kind of uh, way by this point in the war. Finally, of course, the Japanese uh, attack and uh, the subsequent German declaration of war was brought the United States in. And again, both for British strategists and at a more popular level, the idea that they might be able to rely on American support uh, and particularly access, whether or not that support is willing, (laughs) access to American markets and access to American industry had been a really key part of calculations going right back to the start of the war so the, there's a question about how long they could continue to access that whether they'd uh, how much it would cost but the arrival of america actually into the war as a combatant uh, seems certain to unleash that great industrial might of the united states and so there's a real reason for optimism there
0: well you know it's interesting because i think american readers especially will be surprised to read not only of the tremendous public support for the Soviet Union, which you just described. But then also, you, you point out that it's a good deal of resentment or distrust as well about the United States that lingers through 1944. You know, wh- what drives these? I mean, you, you've you kind of stated that already with the Soviet success at Stalingrad and elsewhere. But, um, you know, what, what drove these perceptions? And how did they later shift?
1: Oh, that's a a story that covers i think the whole book you know american and britain are rival powers in many ways there's a legacy left over from the first world war about the fact that britain had reneged on its war debts i think simultaneously amongst the sort of the top level of the british leadership a belief that the americans ought to come in that they ought, you know that there was a sort of moral obligation to support britain combined with a fear of what that would mean for the peace so you know, really, right from the point where, when Britain's trying to work out a deal about what American support might look like in 1940 and 1941, and definitely after the Americans arrive into the war in December 41, there's a sense of, of the struggle for the peace going on. So precisely because uh, both great powers can look towards victory – you know, they, they don't know exactly when it's come it's going to come, but they can be pretty certain it's going to be achieved. That's just the way that the economic balance works out. That means that they can also be thinking about who's going to get to determine that peace. And even by the by the start of 1942, it's clear that American economic might and British reliance on that might, not just to win the war... But also to convert the economy back to its peacetime purpose is going to mean that Britain has to accommodate itself to an American post-war world. It's just exactly how it's going to do that that's going to be worked out. And then at a sort of more popular level, you know, what most Britons know of the United States comes to them wholly through the movies. And they think of Americans as being brash, as being boastful, as being also simultaneously very rich. They don't really have much of a sense of what life in uh, Roosevelt's America is like. They are hugely enthusiastic about Roosevelt, who's a you know, a great hero, particularly for British progressives. But really there's there's a sort of fundamental ignorance about how poor an awful lot of America was at this period. Come I mean very early on, American troops will start to arrive in Northern Ireland and in much greater numbers during 1942 and particularly 1944. You know, when Britons encounter American GIs, then they're given a very particular version of America But it's, you know, it's one that in many ways lives up to their expectations that they might have got from those films, that it's an America which seems very rich, because GIs are incredibly well paid, seems very resource rich, because by the standards of a Britain which is quite austere you know Americans have huge supplies of food lots of sweet things and sugar is rationed so you know uh, that's very attractive particularly to British children but also a very different sort of cultural standard in terms of things like in terms of music in terms of cinema in terms of uh, relationships between the sexes and that of course will cause huge tensions on the british home front as british women Who've been, you know, separated from the menfolk for quite a long time in many cases, suddenly have all these very well dressed Americans appearing on their streets. I say well dressed because by um, British standards, you know, the standard GI's uniform has a for going on leave has a tie with it, so they all look like officers as far as British people are concerned. And we could compare that to the Soviet Union now you know, again, you know, there's a pre-war fascination with the Soviet Union as a place which is building a new society under communism, which is maybe offering a version of a social organization, which is different from a capitalism, which in the 19, early 1930s particularly it seemed perhaps to have failed. And yet a fear, particularly on the British right and among British conservatives about what communism might mean. And then during the war, I mean, there's not really, you know, again, great ignorance on the British home front about what's actually happening in the Soviet Union, combined with a government propaganda campaign, which is designed to steal the thunder of of British communists, to to make sure that there's no problem with this new alliance that has to be made with Stalin, which is all about praising the Soviet Union. And so the Soviet Union becomes a sort of, um, I mean, it's like a blank slate into which people can project their visions of what they'd like their own country to be like so when britons talk about what what's the soviet union like why are these people fighting so hard you know it, they're not saying because they're terrified they're going to be shot by the nkvd if they don't they say because these are people who really have a stake in their country um because they you know they they've got some ownership of what they're fighting for this is this is a meritocracy it's much better than this old society that we've got and i think that's very interesting because it also tells you something about how much uh, people are thinking forward and we know in our, you know, we're getting a very uh, effective lesson at the moment in the way in which the experience of crisis encourages people to look to what might be beyond it and that's something I think you see during the war so people are, are looking to the, the Britain that there might be afterwards and that's part of course of the book's title A New World.
0: One of the accepted truths about the Second World War for American readers is that Winston Churchill governed through broad consensus and support. um, They portray him as a, or they see him as a very popular leader who had the full backing of the war cabinet. And I have to ask, is that really the case? (laughs) Uh,
1: So I'm going to give you a good historian's answer, which is it depends what you mean by is that the case. So (laughs) in some ways, you know, there's tremendous consensus and political unity in uh, Britain during the war, uh, in terms of the, you know, the country is faced with an overwhelming threat. There isn't really any big anti-war movement. There's nobody seeking to make peace really by this point in the war. So To that extent, Churchill does have consensus, and he's not seriously challenged. That doesn't mean that the members of the War Cabinet like him, (laughs) or that they're not looking to play their own advantage. I think he is, by 1942, immensely popular as a war leader, and that means that there's not a great advantage in displacing him. So I think 42 is the point where, you know, it's it's possible to imagine a challenge coming up against him or him being sort of persuaded. It would have to have been very forceful persuasion to resign in favour, perhaps, of a younger man. But that challenge never really comes about. And really, it's because nobody sees the key moment to do it. And even if they had done it's not clear they would have got the political backing. Interestingly, that challenge would probably have come from the political right rather than the left because the only person who's really imaginable as an alternative prime minister is Anthony Eden. And in some ways, an Eden premiership might actually have been better for the Conservative Party in Britain than um, a continuing Churchill premiership. Because one of the things that Churchill gets wrong in forty two is to not focus sufficiently on the post-war aspirations of the people. And that's partly because he doesn't want to start a fight with a Conservative Party which can't agree on what it wants. You know, the Conservative Party split over what will the post-war future look like. But it's mainly because he's concentrating on the war. And it's also because, like all of us, he's a bit self-indulgent and he wants to concentrate on the stuff that he finds he finds interesting and fascinating. And that's war. It's not the difficult decisions that will come afterwards. And what that means, I think, is that he misses the moment to grip reconstruction as a political theme. So it's very hard, if you look back to the previous war, Lloyd George, his, his predecessor between 1916 and 1918, there's absolutely no way that Lloyd George in 1942 wouldn't have got ahead of every other politician in trying to sculpt a vision of what the post-war would look like and stamping his own seal on it. And Churchill doesn't do that. And what that means is that it's, uh, it's possible for, for the Labour Party to gain much more ground and much more public trust, actually, in terms of its stewardship of the post-war order.
0: Yeah, one of your accomplishments here is restoring a place... In the larger narrative for the Indian Army in the Second World War. You know, it's remarkable to learn not only that it was so large, you know, what some two and a half million men in, in the Indian Army, but that it the Pacific theater really was the Indian Army's war rather than being a, a, a the British Army. Why has this been so absent? In, in many of the mainstream accounts
1: of the war, well, I'm going to correct you there because it's the it's the the Indian Ocean is the Indian Army's sphere. Well, the Indian Ocean and the Mediterranean, because of course it's a, an internationally deployed imperial army, one which you know by 1944 is fighting its way up through Italy, garrisoning a big chunk of the Middle East, garrisoning India as well, and fighting in Burma to try to recapture the British Empire in Southeast Asia for British control. So it's a, I mean, this isn't a. As you say, it's an astonishing growth and also a transformation because when the Japanese attack comes, those Indian troops who are are there to meet it in Southeast Asia are not well trained, they're not well prepared, uh, their morale is very low. So, you know, in the space of a couple of years, this force is transformed into a military force of tremendous effectiveness. And it's interesting that it has been so absent. And I think there's two reasons for that. One is the way that the immediate histories of the war were written. So that, you know, who's first out of the blocks with a, a multi-volume history of the Second World War? It's Winston Churchill. <laughs> uh, and Churchill is a very good book by a historian called Catherine Wilson. Churchill deliberately downplays the role of the Indian army, because of course, he was still furious about the fact that the British had left India. And he'd never really been interested in its accomplishments, even as the war was going on. He, after Singapore, he doesn't believe the army's up to much, and he underestimates its fighting power. So,
0: oh, He's not also practically
1: racist. Oh, yes. Oh, no, no. Yeah, uh, absolutely. There's no way that he was going to foreground the accomplishment of uh, Indian soldiers. But there's also, I think, a way that British histories of the war more generally went, which was to become very insular and parochial. And that really starts, I mean, in some ways, the roots of that are are back in the war itself. The official history project that the British government puts into place, its strategic and military volumes are global in their reach, but they're accompanied by a civil history series whose focus is very much on the UK, which presents, for example, statistics of production and things like that in a very UK-centric way. And those volumes are then cherry-picked by subsequent generations of historians in the, the 50s and the 60s in particular. And they, they create a version of the war which is uh, sort of embedded in British culture, which is about the experience of of the United Kingdom. It's not about Britain as part of an empire. So I think there's still an awful lot of work to do to to recapture that idea of the empire really being the, the appropriate unit within which to see Britain's war. And once you start, Uh, seeing it in those terms, then, for example, British military power looks much greater. The number of soldiers, sailors, and airmen that it has under arms is much greater once all this imperial effort is taken into account.
0: Well, I apologize for referring to the Indian theater as the Pacific theater. Uh, That's in, in part because of my ingrained bias as an American. We look at the Pacific War as the primary effort. Yeah, in that part of the world.
1: No, no, and I think, that's, and- I think that's, that in itself is interesting because the other thing that I try and do in this book is to write in that Pacific history because it's, in fact, although there, aren't, there are Australian servicemen and some Royal Navy sailors serving in that theatre by the war's end, but actually, despite the fact there aren't very many British servicemen uh, serving in the Pacific, the course of the war there, of course, has an incredible effect on Britain, yeah. not least because it, the war against Japan ends so quickly in 1945, that all of the British diplomatic manoeuvring with the United States in 1944 is based around the idea that there's going to be a long transition to peace, that you'll have a big gap between peace in Europe and then probably two years before the war against Japan will be finished. In that time, what you'll want to do, of course, is get lots of American aid to, into the UK in order to shift around all those factories which have been converted to making munitions into making exports again, to manage to pay your way out of you know all the damage that's been done during the war. And in fact, all those plans go for a burden in 1945 very quickly. And that that sets up a version of the post-war which is much more chaotic, unplanned, than the British had really anticipated. So, And that's all because of the extraordinary transformation of American fighting power that takes place, in particular, you know, all those things which you'll be familiar with in the Pacific. The US Navy's ability to project naval air power a distance just has this transformative effect that ends the war in the Far East much quicker than the British had expected.
0: Yeah, and I guess you could say from from the British, certainly Churchill's perspective in 1944, it's a, almost a quid pro quo with Roosevelt. You know, we're going to offer more support in the end game in what would be Coronet and uh, Olympic yep. in return for the the help that we need here in the domestic
1: market. Yeah, well, um, and what Churchill's really hoping is that the war will go on long enough for the British to recapture Singapore. Because that, that's the key thing, is that whatever happens, that you know, Singapore mustn't be recaptured by the Americans because then it's never going to come back uh, to British control.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, where I was going with the, with the, the lead-off was to note that you know, our historic memory of the Pacific theatre has been tremendously affected by John Dower's work, you know, War Without Mercy, race and power in the Pacific War, you know, particularly his assertion that American and Japanese racial animosities toward each other really affected the tenor and the level of violence that each leveled against each other during the conflict. Was there a similar dynamic at place in the British and Indian armies toward the Japanese?
1: Oh, undoubtedly. In fact, I think I'm going to expand that slightly because I think one of the things that's interesting about the, the end game of the war in both Europe and in Asia is the hatred. And I think in some ways the the hatred and the anger that British people feel towards Germans in 1944 is, is and 1945 is underappreciated. And that's particularly because from the summer of '44, so many more British servicemen are dying, and the home front is under attack from the V weapons, and there's a real sense that the Germans are fighting on without purpose. And that generates anger that predates the liberation of the camps. So I think that's that anger, and the, the anger is driven by death, right? that the last year of this war, like other wars, you know, they get bloodier as they reach their, their defining moments. And then if, so if you were turning to look at Asia, Yes, there's racial, I mean, definitely racial animus, although whether that, that is necessarily what makes the fighting as bitter as it is, is, I think, an interesting question. So, you know, I was very persuaded by the work of the historian and international relations scholar Tarek Bakawi, and a lot of Tarek's work is about the way that combat creates its own culture, and in particular, the way that circumstances define what options are available to soldiers. And I think, you know, you can see a really clear contrast between the fighting that takes place in the Western Desert in North Africa, where everybody's fighting against the elements. There's lots of space. It's very easy for soldiers to get lost. And actually, prisoners tend to be treated pretty well, not least because soldiers want the chance to surrender. <laughs> uh, you know, that if, if something goes wrong, if you get lost in the desert, you want to be found by somebody else. And that's too easily transferred, I think, into an idea that this was a noble war, or that the um, Germans or Italians in North Africa were, were, you know, were fighting something that was detached from the the genocidal project that's taking place in Europe. And that's absolutely not true. But there's definitely something qualitatively different about the interactions between German and Italian and British Commonwealth troops in the desert from what's happening in the jungles of of Burma. And part of the the intensity of that combat is about the circumstances in which soldiers find themselves in those jungles, that it's, it's difficult to escape, that the sort of fighting that they're involved in often involves being surrounded with no way out, but also a sort of escalatory cycle of violence which confirms what they already believe, so I think that's in a way where the, the racial animus point comes in. Soldiers are fed a set of beliefs about their enemy and, you know, soldiers tend not to believe them, to be doubtful of propaganda, to be suspicious of it before they go into battle. But if then what happens is that prisoners don't surrender, for example, so ja- Japanese troops don't surrender and fight on even after they're wounded, that creates a dynamic in which British and Indian servicemen are, are very unlikely to give them the opportunity to surrender, that in turn makes it even less likely that Japanese soldiers will surrender. <laughs> so both sides are sort of caught in this culture of war in which acts of extreme violence become the everyday.
0: What was the general public's perception toward the combined bomber offensive? You know, we know something of Churchill's mixed views about Arthur Harris and his methods, but how did it stand with the British people?
1: I think that their views are I've actually surprisingly well, I to say surprisingly sophisticated. They're sophisticated. <laughs> and one of the things about people in the past is just like us, they're capable of holding more than one idea at the same time. So there's obviously a desire for vengeance um, after the German raids on Britain in 1940 and 1941. There's a tremendous desire for victory. There's a lot of involvement in the bomber offensive, because they're happening from British bases, bomber commands using planes built in British factories uh, and bombs filled in British factories as well. So I think there's a there is a sense of popular involvement. And the newspapers, I think, whip it up, but there's undoubtedly a section of the public which feels triumph and satisfaction when, in 1943, they see pictures of devastated German cities. But there's also always an undercurrent uh, first of moral doubt led by parts of uh, of the Church of England about whether this is the, the right thing. Has Britain crossed a line into extremity? Is the prosecution of total war a violation of the things that you ought to be fighting for? And you see that even earlier. I mean, even before the bomber offensive becomes effective, you see that, for example, in discussions of the naval blockade, of occupied Europe. Mm. Is, is this the right way to be fighting? But also, I think a sense of humanity and violated humanity that can come from people's own experience of being under the bombs and then seeing others attacked in the same way. And I think it's very interesting if you look at the morale reports that are produced by the Home Intelligence part of the Ministry of Information, you know, these are documents which are not terribly challenging to the way that Britain fights uh, most of the time. But the, the information that they collected about popular attitudes has this top note of satisfaction. Oh, good, this is the right thing that's being done. But underneath it is always this layer of this is awful. This is something that isn't Right. You know, in the aftermath of the Dambusters raid, there are people who talk about it being particularly bad to think about German civilians being drowned. And then I think you know some of my favourite quotations are those who, much like the rest of us, uh, when we're confronted with this sort of thing, don't want to think about it. So they say, "Don't make me think about it. I don't, I don't want to. I don't want to have my nose rubbed in I know we've got to do all this awful stuff to win, but I don't want my nose rubbed in the fact we've got to do it."
0: And I can't imagine, but I think it's even made more complex by the ongoing of the V raids yep. through 44, or 45, like you explained earlier.
1: Well, no, absolutely. And I think that, um, again, it's sort of it's puzzling when you, if you were just to look at the bomb weight involved, the sort of the, the payloads, the V 1s and V 2s deliver such a tiny explosive weight against the UK compared to what just British forces are capable of doing then, let alone the combined offensive, which is, you know, just developing this colossal power in the summer of 44. And yet there is something about being attacked by robot weapons from the sky, which seems to violate norms. So this is seen in Britain in the summer of 44 as being particularly outrageous that you're being attacked by weapons that don't have a human controller. And there's something, part of that is a sort of a sense of the uncanniness of these attacks, but also just how frightening they are that they arrive with little warning right the way through the day and the night. So it's that sense that you, you're, you might be vulnerable anywhere and you've got to be frightened the whole time.
0: While many American readers are going to come to this book with a strong disdain for Field Marshal Bernard Law Montgomery, they also will consider him to be Churchill's best choice for command of 21st Army Group. And indeed, going all the way back to the Eighth Army in in North Africa. But the actual relationship between the two men was not that easy to pin down, though, was it?
1: Uh, No, I mean, look, in some ways you've got two divas, right? That's the problem. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I think that Montgomery's genius, and Churchill recognizes that, is his understanding of the importance of morale, and that he needs to build up his soldier's morale in order to make sure that they can fight effectively. But part of the way that he does that is to create a mythos around himself, about his genius, about his total control of every situation, and also his media presence. And I think there are definitely times, particularly ahead of the D-Day landings, when Montgomery's touring round factories and forces in Britain, when Churchill actually gets a bit jealous of all the publicity uh, that's being afforded to him. And I think there's also, these are people who are both willing to have a, a fight who are not necessarily emollient personalities, and they're very fortunate, both of them, that, that there's somebody interposing himself between them. Because I think you're absolutely right that Montgomery was the best choice available. I also think it was entirely within his personality <laughs> set to potentially over step the line and end up being sacked by Churchill. Fortunately, in the middle of them is Allenbrook, the chief of the imperial general staff, who's, who's acting as a sort of cushion, who's protecting Montgomery and trying to constrain Churchill in all sorts of ways.
0: And plus it helps that Churchill really didn't have a good relationship with anybody who could be considered as an alternative. <laughs>
1: Well, I think it's one of the things that I think is interesting is if, like Churchill, you seem to be talking a lot about all kinds of different things and be having sometimes erratic ideas, then often people underestimate you. And I think when I was editing the Alan Brook diaries, I very much took Brook's perspective. and it's if you live in somebody's head for two years, transcribing their diary, you, you know, you you start to adopt all of their points of view, and and I saw Churchill through you know from Brook's perspective. Actually, you know, in the course of these books, particularly in the course of the second one, I developed a lot more respect for Churchill. It doesn't mean I like him, but I think his ability to be grappling across the whole piece of the the total war, to be trying to weigh up not just the military decisions, but to be thinking about grand strategy is impressive. He never grasps all of it because nobody could. But the ability to conceptualise what's happening internationally, I think, is important. And very often what you realise is that Brooke thinks he's doing something stupid when actually Churchill has a plan. It might just not be a plan that fits terribly well with Brooke's view of the world.
0: How serious was the manpower shortage after September 1944?
1: I think one of the problems with manpower shortage is it makes it sound like there's nobody nobody left in the UK. And actually, I think the, the problem is about the different things that Britain is trying to achieve. Uh, From 1944 onwards, it's trying simultaneously to fight the war to a conclusion in Europe and Asia, to keep large enough forces in battle that it can play a credible part in trying to define the peace, but also start to reconvert its economy and start thinking about what will the transition to peace look like. So, you know, if you totally reverse the situations and the Germans invade the UK, there's no shortage of men to be put in the army to fight them. But there's definitely a manpower problem for British armies around the world in 1944 in terms of just getting enough infantry recruits, uh, trained infantrymen through to keep their infantry battalions up to strength. And that, again, is partly to do with the planning that if the British had expected the war in Europe to go on as long as it did, they'd probably have uh, stuck more men into the infantry. Because those are the units that get chewed up quickest, where there's the biggest turnover in men, but which are also so important to holding ground, to still being able to play an effective part in offensive and defensive operations. And, I mean, one of the reasons that that Indian Army triumph in Burma in forty-four and forty-five is so impressive is that it is increasingly Indian because British infantry units are being worn down to such a degree that they're becoming less and less effective.
0: Well, yeah, we come back to India, and of course it's another feature of the war in India that's, I think, almost criminally absent from the narratives, which is the Bengal famine in 1943. I don't think people really understand just how serious that was and, you know, how it not only affected morale, if you think of it that way, in India, but any trust that might have lingered in Churchill and the the British home government. Uh, How do we misplace this? How do we lose this narrative?
1: I mean, partly that's about global power structures. (laughs) And those not only shape what happens at the time, they shape how the history is written afterwards. Partly it's because, I mean, the same racially determined hierarchies which determine who gets fed also determine who writes the history that's important for people in the UK and in America. I also think actually events that happen away from the fighting fronts get less coverage. And I think it's partly because people don't think about the, the economics of the war. I, you know, you write big books like this and you, you, when, you, when you do the bit on economics, you often think, oh, is anybody going to read this or are they going to skip to the next bit where there's some combat happening? But I think particularly the way that Britain funds the war and the effect that that has on countries outside the UK is really important and, and underappreciated in, in most of the literature. So, although Britain you know if you from an anglo American perspective, the war's all about Britain not having enough dollars, but it never has enough problem spending in pounds, not least because countries within the Empire fund the war effort in their particular bit of it from their own accounts and build up debts in London, but debts that the British control in terms you know the the rate of repayment, the rate of interest, and everything else. so what that means is that the British imperial war effort in India is funded by Indians and the immense spending that happens through the Indian state causes very rapid inflation. Now, that's a that's a feature of of all wartime economies. In the UK, that you know, there's a huge range of controls and rationing to restrict that inflation to make sure that consent is maintained, combined with a kind of global system of food resourcing to make sure that the British population never goes hungry. Uh, in India, there aren't those same controls over inflation, and actually, it's not just in Bengal. But large parts of India see the population move from a state of, of survival into malnutrition and in some cases into starvation. And Bengal's the worst example of that. In Britain, the historiography tends to get bogged down in whether it's Churchill's fault. And that's still, a, I mean, a big barrier to discussing this event sensibly today. You know, it's the trigger event for it is uh, trigger events for it at the Japanese conquest of Burma and a, a calamitous cyclone. British rule is undoubtedly to blame. Some of the things that Churchill says about Indians uh, in the course of discussing the famine and the choices that the British War Cabinet make about the allocation of shipping show how racist he is, how much he hates India. But he's not the person who causes this famine. It's the whole system. And I think trying to understand that system and its effects is something that really we've still got to get to grips with.
0: We talked earlier about Britain and America's interactions at the end game of the war. And I want to ask, to what extent does the American policy on sharing the atomic bomb affect that relationship?
1: I mean, it's one of the things that Churchill's struggling for right the way through from 43 onwards. So, you know, the The British share the atomic secrets with the US, they've made all the running. And very, very quickly, uh, in the course of 1942, the situation totally reverses itself and it's the Americans who are in the lead. Nobody knows how quickly this will become a viable weapon and how viable it might be. And I think really they struggle with understanding just what a devastating weapon it is right until the the first successful test. But it's clear it's going to be very important and important not just for victory over Germany if necessary, and if not Germany, then against Japan, uh, but also for the post-war world. And it's part of the bargaining and the pleading with Roosevelt that Churchill's doing. And very often it becomes another one of the counters that he's playing for. And I think, again, that sort of gets back to the point that I was making about Brooks' perspective on Churchill tends to be a very narrowly military one. So it's about, you know, is he he making the right choice in terms of his military leaders? Why is it that he gives in so easily to the idea that it should be an American who's the supreme allied commander in Europe? And what he doesn't see is everything else that Churchill's trying to organise at the same time, including a restoration of access to atomic knowledge. And that too, you know, it's another way in which really the British find the immediate post-war tremendously disappointing, that actually, as far as they're concerned, This image, which they'd hoped might be possible of a sort of Anglo-American (laughs) co-dominion over the world, is just not going to come to pass.
0: Well, given that we here are coming off of a very strongly contested election, uh, I feel compelled to ask you about the July 1945 general election. And, you know, why, why did the Conservatives fail to capture the loyalty and support of the British electorate?
1: Oh, great question. Well, part of this is about generational change. It's been 10 years since the last general election in the UK. There would have been one due in 1940 had it not been for the war uh, breaking out. So throughout the war, unlike in the United States, there's an electoral truce. So you don't have, unlike you know, it's a, you know, know, the whole world is hanging on the outcome of those presidential elections, you don't have that sort of rhythm to political life in the UK. There's an awful lot of interest in both political parties. In reconstruction, so in what will the post war look like? The Labour Party, which is committed to socialism and to planning as the solution to um, the country's economic ills, has a very clear way of understanding what went wrong as they see it in the 1930s and what could go right in the 1940s. There's not nearly anything like that unity in the Conservative Party, and you see a much bigger range. In some ways, it's very Interesting, philosophically, politically philosophically interesting moment for conservatism, where they're struggling with all sorts of different solutions to the challenge of totalitarianism. But there isn't a sort of agreed on line. And that, I think, makes it very difficult, you know, even if everything else had been equal, it makes it very difficult for them to make a coherent offer to the electorate. Lots of people had not forgiven the Tories for being in charge in 1939 and 1940. So, um, you know, the disaster of failure in France and Britain being forced back onto the defensive is, is laid at their door very effectively. So there's a sort of abiding abiding bit of that. Labour runs a tremendously good campaign. Um, so it's a very modern campaign. By the sands of the 1940s, it has exciting posters it targets very clearly women so you know women who traditionally voted conservative are although they don't come over wholly to supporting the labor party are much more likely to vote labor than they had been in 1945 not least because the labor party asks them to vote for their absent husbands and sons so there's this idea that those fighting um deserve a better peace and then there's also i think there's a sort of um not quite a Bacchanalian aspect to it, but the, the war's come to an end. People want something different and they're willing to give Labour a chance. And the other side of that is that Churchill makes a mess <laughs> of both of gripping... He's, he's, he's not thinking about the post-war election in 1942, which is when he needed to be thinking about it. So the, the narrative of reconstruction has been gripped on the left. He never at any point sort of after that really concentrates on what will happen post-war politically for long enough to make a difference conservatives then sort of put together a campaign which is still convincing to a large part of the British electorate you know so although it's a landslide win for for the Labour Party that's partly a a result of first past the post you know millions of people still vote conservative but the middle ground swings to the Labour Party in a way that had just been unthinkable during the 1930s so that is a tremendous difference a tremendous change but it's a Labour Party that's been changed by the war too that its leaders look patriotic and responsible in a way they hadn't in the 1930s, that they've been practised in government in a way they hadn't been in the 1930s. So, I mean, that simultaneously makes charges of them being irresponsible much harder to make the stick. But it also means that actually, in terms of foreign policy, there'll be very little visible shift (laughs) between the Churchill Coalition and the post-war Labour government, that they're actually fighting for the same things.
0: Are there any deeper lessons or observations about Britain's war? that we should consider in the current day
1: i think that one of the reasons that this is an interesting story to look at historically is that it's about complexity and about compromise you know for all that britain will end up on the winning side the people in charge of the uk from 1942 onwards have they're playing a losing hand right that they're they're having to work out how they, can keep as, they want to keep as much British power as possible <laughs> in a situation where the cards are increasingly in American and Russian hands. And that, I think, equips us to think about the, the modern world, that actually it's a world in which compromises need to be made, that we live in an era when political divisions are such that compromise is more difficult, but that actually the only way that we're going to face up to the great challenges of the 21st century, whether that's geopolitical change or climate change or future pandemics ai and all the changes that will bring all of that is going to require some compromises and some some complex thoughts so i you know even if you're you're not somebody who knows a lot about britain and the second world war i think this is a useful thinking exercise about how did they do it
0: well as we bring our interviews to a close there are always two closing questions that we like to ask our guests and first, aside from taking a well-deserved break <laughs> from writing, where are you going from here? What's your next project?
1: I'd like to write more about that, that V-weapon offensive in the, the summer of forty-four. So in the course of writing the book, I realized how, what an important international moment that is. <laughs> it's a very yeah. modern moment because these are, these are such modern weapons, and it's also a moment when the fighting front and the home front seem very connected so I was very struck, and it's a you know it's a there's a a lovely quote that I use in the book from the diary of a a Canadian officer with a, he's been seconded to a British infantry regiment, and as soon as they get across the Rhine in 1945, one of his sergeants takes a pickaxe handle, goes into the first German house he can find, and he smashes the whole place up, and it's because his house has been wrecked back in London by a V1 missile. And so that way in which the anger generated on the home front can go back to the fighting front. I think is really interesting. So that's that's the next project, and that's probably part of thinking about the war and cities again as a sort of moment of modernity. So I don't want to write another. <laughs> I don't want to write another big book, <laughs> um, and I definitely don't want. There won't be a third part. I mean, you could you could imagine a third part of uh, of Britain's war that became Britain's Cold War, but I think actually what I want to do is look at some of the things that I found so fascinating in in more detail in a closer study.
0: That's nothing at all wrong with that. I mean, you've written so many weighty tomes, I think you've earned a break. Thank you. (laughs) The second question we have, is there anything you're reading, viewing, or otherwise consuming that you might recommend to our listeners, and it doesn't necessarily have to relate to the Second World War, or or even to military history? Uh,
1: share what you're reading oh that's uh, that's really good I'm, i'm gonna spin around in my chair and look at you can't see me i'm gonna spin around in my chair and look at my bookshelf um so at the moment i'm i'm teaching a class about london in the first world war and one of the things i love about that is the work that i get to do with students we try and get them to to do some primary research and look at documents that haven't been haven't been looked at before. And I'm really enjoying a whole set of different readings about London as a city and the people who lived there. There's an excellent book by the historian Panikos Pinayi called Migrant City that's about the way in which different migrant communities um, in the 20th century have formed London and the way in which they've turned it into an international city or, or a different form of international city as time has gone on. So I've really been enjoying that. I've also been enjoying a book called Home Fires Burning, which is a set of diaries by a woman called Georgina Lee, who was uh, in London during the First World War. We don't have as many diaries uh, from civilians from the First World War. And, you know, lots of the diaries from that period, it's, you know, partly because of the way that things like psychology change, they're not as reflective. But it's absolutely amazing to be able to put yourself back into the shoes of somebody who was there at the time seeing events unfold as they happen.
0: Daniel Todd, and thank you again for joining us
1: Thank you Bob, it was an absolute pleasure
0: Oh the same here and, and for our listeners on behalf of the New Books Network this is your host Bob Wintermute. Thank you for listening to New Books in Military History